Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Chef's Story, and this is Dorothy Can Hamilton from the International Culinary Center in New York and California. But we're in New York, and today uh, we are broadcasting uh, from Roberta's Restaurant down in downtown Bushwick, Brooklyn. And I am so excited because um, I don't know him very well, but I'm a fan. We have Chef Dale Talde with us. Talde. Yes, Talde. And of, he's got such an interesting background. He's originally from Chicago. Um, he worked at Vong Spring, a lot of restaurants in Chicago. But probably the, the ones that you, you would know are um, Morimoto and Budokan, I think maybe down in Philadelphia, was that? No, no, in, here in, in, in New uh, York. Yeah. In New York. And he was the director of Asian Concepts uh, for Star Restaurants. But if you know him, you probably know him from uh, being on Top Chef. And he was not just on Top Chef once, but he was in also the All-Star season. And he has incredible accolades. Uh, He's been chosen by Food & Wine magazine as uh, uh, one of the top uh, New York City, or the top New York City chef. We, you know, um, and this is the most incredible thing. He has opened three restaurants in one year. This, this we've got to get into this. This is something I've never <laughs> seen in my uh, profession. So, um, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Wow. Um, so, actually, you've done a lot. You've been a chef for and cooking for a while. You went to the Culinary Institute of America back in 1998. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, tell me, but uh, tell me, where, where did you grow up in Chicago? Yeah, and- born in, I'm born and raised in Chicago. Um, you know, my parents had a house out um, about 20, 20 minutes northwest of um, downtown Chicago, a place called Niles. And, uh, you know, I'm a first-generation American, and, um, you know, my parents are Filipino, so uh, I think that's kind of where it all started for me, like really seeing a um, a different culture through food. Um, like, you know, I grew up eating real, you know, just real Filipino food all the time. It wasn't... Um, were your parents able to get the, the products in Chicago? You know, it, they were. Um, there's a large population of Filipinos in Chicago. Um, and legal or le- illegal, they were growing <laughs> whatever they could, you know, from back home that right. um, they can get they can get here and, and, and grow in their backyard. But, you know, they made the best of what they could. Um, and they But they tried to stay as authentic as possible. You know, my parents really enjoyed um, eating the flavors of the food that they grew up eating. So there was no like. Were they, did they both cook? No, I just my um my mother primarily cooked, but um, there was certain things that my father did cook. You know, like he cooked um, these. Uh, it's called beefsteak, and it's, it's essentially a steak, but it's you know it's hammered to death. It's cooked all the way. It's a ton of onions, ton of garlic, a little bit of soy sauce. Um, but he he cooked a few things that he um, had specials. Yeah. 
those were her. His Did you ones. go back to the Philippines with them? And yeah, um, when I was about ten, ten or eleven, I went back. My um, my grandfather passed away, so we went back home, and it was kind of like this real culture shock of going back to a country that is. I mean, it was so foreign at that age. Um, you but know. you had been sort of living. You you know, I when you went to the. When you went to school, did your mother pack a lunch? She did. and What and, was in it? You know, like, and, and I think I, I pull a little of this reference from a friend of mine, Eddie Wang, is that, you know, when you were in, when I was in school and my mom did pack my lunch, it was very foreign. And it was like, you, you were almost embarrassed that, like, you had adobo and rice and, um, you know, pancit or with noodles and every other kid was eating a sandwich and like, you know, you open this Tupperware and people were like, oh, what's he eating? That's kind of weird and it smells and it's funny and you just wanted to have a sandwich. You just wanted to fit in. Right. So kind of that's... Um, I remember Rocco Despirito telling me that his mother used to make him, you know, uh, paninis and with soppressetta and peppers and everything and he people would look at him weirdly and he'd trade him off for peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, it's that's the kind of atmosphere it is when you're yeah. when you're growing up. You know, you're eight or you're you know seven, sure. eight, nine years old, yeah. and you you just want to fit in. You want you know. Did you ever trade it for? Uh, no, no, a there was no trading. There was not no at trade. that age. Not I mean, in, yeah. no, I had no, I had what nobody wanted. Was, were there any other Filipinos? In yeah, there? that's the funny thing is that there were a lot of Filipinos, but we all kind of like. I guess we didn't have a sense of who we were at that point. You know, when we got to high school, it yeah. became more of a. Um, there was more of an association, like, you know. A cultural identity. Exactly. Because there was a large Filipino, um, you know, there was a Filipino club. We had, a, I, I, was, I was in a large high school called Main East, and it was a big school. Like, when I graduated, there was a thousand kids in my class. Wow. So it was a large high school, and there was a Filipino club, an African-American club, a, a Greek club, a Korean club. So, you know, the Filipinos that were around, and if you did have lunch with these Filipinos, like, we banded together, and it was like, hey, what did you bring? Did, you know, yeah. did your mom make something? And, and you know, Someone would say, hey, my mom's making arascaldo, which is like a chicken rice. It's basically like um, kanji, mm-hmm. like a chicken rice soup. Mm-hmm. Oh, my mom's making that tonight. Bring some, bring, bring some to school tomorrow. So we would band up together, but it wasn't until like, you know, junior Did senior. any other thing other than food band you together as, as tightly as, as the food for, did? <laughs> for, I mean, this is a very strange kind of, I think, cultural thing that happened to Filipinos of my age. But uh, like smooth R&B and hip hop. Like, really? re- like smooth boy- R&B. Smooth R&B, like boys <laughs> to men, like uh, really, um, and then, you know, not like traditional R&B, but like, uh, you know, early 90s R&B music, like we latched You're onto that hard. You're giving away your age here. I am. I'm like, I'm 34. But like, we all like, we all dug into it and it was like, it was funny and that and dance and like, you know, like a lot of the kids in, of my think so generation. So basically music and food is how, but, but it wasn't Filipino, the thing that, that yeah. was Filipino. So was it the Filipinos that dug the same music? Yeah, I think, it, and I, I use this as a reference, is that, um, you know, in the media, a lot of people can see someone who looks like them and attach themselves to like, hey, you know, if you're African-American, hey, Michael Jordan looks like me mm-hmm. and there's someone I can identify in the media that looks like mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. Filipinos don't have that and real and we still kind of don't have that it's we're starting to get that mm. um that like hey there's that person on tv there's that person like you kind of 
You know, I, I, I think it's a... <laughs> but I mean, you on Top Chef. Sure. And, and the influences that, you know, were in your, your food. So, so you're young. Did you, did you have a palate for American food when you were young? Of course. I think every kid had a palate for like, I want McDonald's, I want McDonald's, I want McDonald's. Sugar and, and salt. <laughs> yeah, that's what we wanted. And um, I had a palate for it. But, it, you know, what I always say is that like when I was at home, it was always chicken adobo, um, oxtails and, you know, oxtail stew and peanut sauce and like fish head, you know, tam- a sour tamarind soup with fish heads. But as soon as I left there, you know, I went to school and it was square pizzas and tater tots. <laughs> and that was like... The beauty of American cuisine. But yeah, but that was like our, you know, that's kind of... And, and really, that's how kind of what we do at Taldi, yes. that's how a little bit of that is kind of is um, how that fusion or that, that mix of food and cultures comes together. Yeah. Yeah. So wh- how did you get to the culinary? Um, I, you know, I always tell the story. My mom's like, I know, I don't remember that story at all. But she's like, <laughs> uh, you know, like she I came home one day and it was really that sour tamarind soup with fish heads. It's called mm. Sinigang. And I was like, I don't want to eat that. And my mom, you know, my mom, my, my poor mother, I mean. She had three kids, all of us like really whiny, but she was like, you know, she worked the overnight shift as a nurse. Oh. God bless her. And she worked 16 hour days sometimes as an overnight, you know, as, a, as an RN mm. and then would come home, cook and clean for the family. And then for one of her kids, we, I don't want to eat that. So she's like, I cooked. That's how, that's what, that's what it is. If you right. don't want to eat, then make it yourself. And I was like, I want pancakes and I want apple pancakes. So. She's like, then make it yourself. So I looked at the box and was like, this can't be that hard. Mm. So then I was like, probably like 10 or 11 and I made pancakes for dinner. And I was like, I think that kind of was like, that's it. That so was then you ate pancakes moment. for the next eight years? No, I had for that one night. And then I was like, you know what? I really want rice now. <laughs> <laughs> you, you cured yourself. Cure, correct, correct. Right. So uh, so you're in high school. Where did the chef idea come in? What did you do? I mean, did you always, go right to culinary from high school? I did. Uh-huh. I did. But it was always one, one of those things that are like, one of those things, I was always interested in food. Um, I would get home from school when I, you know, this was when I wasn't working. I would get home from school and I would, you know, we would, me and my mother would watch Mario Batali's, um, you know, when he still had a show yeah. on. And it was so great. That show to me Molto was... Molto Mario. Mario. It was so great. Yeah. And we would, I would watch shows like um, Great Chefs of the World. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that show. Mm-hmm. That show was the best. Mm. Took so you I, around the world. Too. It did. And what I loved about that is that everybody looked the same. Whether they're in Germany or Austria or France or Sweden or Italy, you know, even when they're in the States, they had different dishes. Mm-hmm. But you would always look at the chef and be like, oh, he's in whites. He's in chef whites. He's got a hat. He's got a toque on. He's got an apron on. And he's using the same tools. And it fascinated me, I guess. So like, it, it's all the same, but they're all cooking different things. Yeah. Like, so it really kind of, I don't know, changed my point of view on, on, on that. So what did your parents think when you wanted to be a chef? Uh, my mom was all for it. My dad was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I, I've, I, don't, I, can't believe I came to the States, worked as hard as I did, and now you want to work harder than I've ever – you know, you're going to work just as yeah. hard, if not harder, than I did. What, does you, what did your father do? He's a boilermaker. So oh. he fixes, like, industrial-sized boilers uh, and really, really hard work. I mean, mm. I, there were days I'd come home and my dad was just And what did they want up. you to be? A I, think my, I think my dad, no, I mean, my dad just wanted us to have an easier life, you know, because mm-hmm. my dad, I mean, my parents both have lived fairly rough lives, mm. um, tough, not rough, but just, you know, a little bit more difficult than, than what we've had to go through. So I think that, you know, everybody's vision is that the, their child has it easier. Right. You know, but I don't I mean, for me, it, they were my inspiration. My mom and my dad were to see how hard they worked. I was like, well, 
I can't, I could never sit behind a desk. I couldn't do that. I like working with my hands and being creative, I think is more importantly, working hard. Like I like work, like I like to work. Were they surprised that you were so drawn to food? Um, or did they know from the time you were little and you were making your apple pancakes that... My, I think my mother knew from... My mom's side because we would share those times. It would be like two hours where we would literally just watch like cooking show after cooking show after cooking show and talk about like, how you, you know, that looks interesting, this looks interesting. She, you know, I would buy Gourmet Magazine and um, we, would, we would, you know, we would look at the recipes together. And so there was already something there. Mm. Um, so that's good. So... Um, when you got to cooking school, was it a shock? Oh yeah, complete shock, complete Why? shock. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Why? What? What did school I mean, do? When I when like when I got to CIA, there had to be like a, you had to work in a professional kitchen for six six to eight months minimum. Right. And I'd worked in a restaurant, but like not back of the house. Like I was like uh, I was a server at a pancake at like an international, or not an internet. It was a but Walker like Brothers Pancake House. Yeah. What was it called? Walker Brothers Pancake House. Okay. Pretty famous pancake house out in in the suburbs. It had your eyes open to what's Absolutely. what the industry is like. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but I, you know, they never gave me a shot at the back of the house, so they're just like, "Hey, listen, kid, we'll put it on. We'll put it. We'll write. We'll sign this letter and say that you did it. You know, good luck and God bless." And I was like, "Oh yeah, that's cool with me." So I went, you know, shipped me off to culinary school, and I was like, "What was uh, the biggest shock about a professional restaurant?" Or a professional back of the house. What, you know, there's a lot of people who love to cook, and they think, oh, I'm going to be a chef, or I could be a chef. But what's the biggest, what was the biggest shock for you? Um, uh, it wasn't the amount of work. It, it, for me, I've always been fairly coordinated. For me, it was not getting it right the first time. And that was just like, to me, was like, oh, my God, I can't believe, like, like I would literally freak out if my brunoise was like not perfect. And those are those little chopped things for people who don't know what brunoise. <laughs> yeah, this is the little dices and the knife yeah. work that I felt like I'm more coordinated than. I mean, I always walk into like I mean, most chefs you walk in and you say I'm better than these guys are, and I would walk in the kitchen and I say I think I'm the most coordinated person here. I, as a matter of fact, I know I'm the most coordinated person here, and you couldn't. I didn't nail it perfectly. I think it was okay. But, like, on my first – just how hard I had to get there, how it, hard I had to work to get to, like, work it, on – It truly makes you appreciate Jacques Pepin. Oh, <laughs> for sure. The Zen master of the knife. He really is. It, it, it's, like, flawless when you see him do it. And he – it's so fa- – you know, I watch chefs watch him because that's how good he is. But getting back to you, this is – so th- that's an excellent observation in that it took – so um, – so did you enjoy your time at the CIA? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I mean, I was really young. I mean, I graduated high school when I was 17, so I was 18. You know, when I went to culinary school, I was 18. And in hindsight, I was fairly young to do that process. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't change it right now, but definitely if I was older, I'm sure I would have taken a lot more out of it. Like, you're at 18, you're easily swayed into saying generic things like, I'm not. Gonna, I'm not a pastry chef, so I'm not. I don't care about pastries. I'm going to get through it. And in hindsight, it's more. It's like, hey, dude, that's what you should be doing because that's what you're weakest at. That's right. what you should focus on things like bread and pastries because the cooking part. If you love to do that, and it comes more naturally to you, then it's 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 easier. For, you know, it's easy to learn. But these pastry ideas of pastry and doing these things are, are they're not normal to you. So focus on them more. 
It's like you know, like a like an athlete. If you don't shoot, if you're a basketball player, you don't shoot free throws well. Practice free throws. Right. So to me, that was, in hindsight, that's what I would have done different. That's a very good piece of advice. You have to. You have to work on the things you're not good at. Well, that's great. Well, we're gonna, we have to take a break here, and sure. when we come back, we're going to talk about um, how you took that and ran with it. Thanks. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast regional forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Okay, welcome back. And a little shout-out to Andrew White. That's his guitar playing. I met him up in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. Great place. And today we're talking, this is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and I'm, you're listening to Chef Story, and we're talking to Dale Talday, um, one of the brightest and uh, hottest chefs in New York City at the moment. And, well, and I should say not from the Manhattan borough. He's from the Brooklyn borough. Brooklyn. We've just kind of talked about his early life and his first stages of getting uh, his knife skills. <laughs> <laughs> so you started your journey as a young chef uh, Actually, in a grill house, right? Oh yeah, I worked at I worked at Outback Steakhouse. It was my first job out of what, culinary what school. What was that like? Did you expect to work at an Outback, or did you want to go work at a fancy restaurant? I to be honest with you, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I left culinary school. I just needed to know I needed to decompress for like three months to kind of like get my mind right. Yeah. And after three months, my mom is that like, because the school was so uh, hard and pressure and I think so. I think there was just a lot of like missing home you know you see all your friends and all your homeboys are like in college and they're doing things and like you just miss two years of this and you're like man like you know i gotta i want to catch up with you guys and it was really just three months of me catching up with all the all all my friends right Uh, and then after that i was like my mom's like well you've done a really great job at blowing whatever money that you've had saved up (laughs) and you're cut (laughs) off so go get a job and i was like oh i don't know what i want to do I need some money, so I went to go work. I was like, just looked at the ad, and I was like, I'll back steakhouse. Boom, got it. Okay, so what did they put you on the line right away? They put me on the line right away. Big mistake on their end. Really? I was terrible. Why? You came out of culinary school. Oh, you didn't know how to that, work I the think line? that's the bus- biggest misconception. Is Let's that, talk about that. Go into it. Why, oh, what, bit, what didn't you – I mean, they put you on the line. What was it like? I mean, you, people laugh at – people will laugh at that experience – it is a busy restaurant. Outback Steakhouses in like sub northwest suburbs of Chicago were open at five, done at ten. You know they crammed. How many steaks? I didn't. There's no way they let me even near tempting steaks. <laughs> okay, they should. That was a mistake. They that was a great yeah. decision on their end. I worked yeah. like saute where I just made pastas and 
um, you know, like cooked chicken breast, and I was just chicken breast came back. It's it's not cooked all the way, and it was like terribly not cooked. Up. You know, it was like yeah. horrendously raw. raw. <laughs> I mean, I was bad. I was a bad line cook. I, I wasn't a professional at the point. You know, there's no way I shouldn't have been called a professional. I mean, I should have been like on Fry Station, but it was, you know, they fit, they put me where they needed me, and it was just a. It, it was a learning experience for so sure. So how did you get to be here today on this show? What was the learning process? Oh, I, and, I, I mean, and how I, long does it take? Because people don't know out there. They think, you know, I've made dinner for 40 people, you know, for a birthday celebration. Everyone loved it, said it was the best thing they ever had. I could be a chef in a flash. You went to the Culinary Institute of America, spent two years there, graduated, and you go to Outback, and you're failing miserably, it, it was sending out a raw chicken or you know on, multiple on, but, times mul- multiple times <laughs> where is that disconnect and how do what really happens how do people I, progress i think it's one did you should you have gone to cooking school oh of course i should have gone to cooking school i think cooking school is an amazing experience um so then why couldn't you cook a chicken breast i mean it was experience i never worked in a professional i mean that it, cooking school is awesome it lays the foundation down but experience constantly working at you know rep- constant repetition continually making something over and over and over again okay so in culinary school if they gave you a chicken to cook you probably could have cooked it sure but at outback it went out not cooked where is the difference i think that's what people want to it's also multitasking it's you're cooking seven dishes at one time while other well another set of orders are being called to you and you have to do it the same way every single time well you know, if you're cooking at a dinner party at home, you're like, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna lay out my 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 list of things to do, and the lasagna will get made the day before, and then I'll put that in uh, two hours before um, it gets made, and then I'll make the salad, and then I'll dress it right before you know we everyone sits down. I'll have my canapes all laid out. Everyone will have a cocktail when they get in. It'll be great and. It's not like so, that. So, yeah, you kitchen. have control. But then when you get into a professional kitchen, it's the c- customer that has the control, of the timing control. Because you don't know. I want a chicken, no cheese, add tomatoes. Okay. Then you, I want another chicken regular. I, I need two more chickens regular. I need another chicken, you know, and no And while salt. you're cooking this, the orders are coming in. Yeah, and people are screaming for the orders to go out. So is it? it's an organizational job probably mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. much as anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, to me, it's almost like the stock exchange. Really? If you, could, if, you can, if you can hear these repetitive, if you can multitask and hear and do something, you know, hear something being barked in your ear and continue to work and remember what was yelled in your ear, that's kind of a, a skill set that school never really fully teaches you. I mean, it's really something that you have to get into a kitchen and you have to have your, sh- you know, the chef barking down on you the sous chef barking down on you, um, you know, other cooks relying on you to be right. Other cooks are relying on you to be just as good. There's a lot of pressure because I've, there's a lot of people who are relying on you to do your job. Right. You know, uh, you're on Top Chef. So Tom Colicchio worked at Burger King. That was one of his first jobs. And he really went back and said, you know, I respected that experience because you have to be organized, you know, with Absolutely. the heat and, and the volume you have to put out. Okay, let, let's move on to the more fun. What was it like <laughs> working at Morimoto? Oh, it was a great experience. I mean, Chef Morimoto is a... Uh, he's one of my favorites. Yeah, he's a, he's an, you know, he's a real, real restaurateur, a real professional um, probably one of the best guys on the sushi line you will ever see. His hands move so fast; it almost looks like someone's, 
like you're watching it at DVR and then you just hit fast forward like four no. times. His hands are so fast. And that's one of the things that you you look at this guy and you know that he's done this just a million times and it's that fast. I'm telling you, if you sit at the sushi bar wherever he's working, he's not lost a step. Really? He is so fast, so quick, um, so precise. So in which of these, was there any one restaurant where you had a transcendental moment saying, I, I got it? Yeah. I, where was that? Yeah, it was one of my restaurants in Chicago called Naha. Um, and I, let me tell you, I partied pretty hard when I was a kid. You know? I can't believe it. Well, yeah, you know, I got, <laughs> um, rolled a joint before I went to work for a while. <laughs> and when you get to a point in your life and you say, something is just not clicking. Mm. I, I can never get set up. I always feel behind. I, mm. I'm just not. And I kind of made this, I made a decision. I'm not going to do this anymore before. I, I respect them too much. To who is them? Oh, Carrie and Michael Nahabedian. They're my two of my mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I respect Carrie too much because she cares too much about her business and mm. her food and and us. Mm. So I stopped doing that, and it really was like it's like the light got turned on. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. I was so much more prepared for service. I was so much like more involved. It was you know it really clicked about being a family and in a restaurant instead of being in this haze of like. I'm constantly behind, not knowing what I'm doing. So that that's when, for me, I stopped partying, and I was like, this is... This How is. big a team was it? It was probably about 10 guys in the kitchen. You know, it was a, a meat, an entremet, fish, grill, two in garmage, two in, um, two in uh, pastry, and then her or her and her sous chef, and then two dishwashers. So, um, mm. yeah. It was, it was and a, how a, many covers a night would you do? Kind of busy night, we'd probably do 180. That was pushing. That was pushing, mm. um, but it was it was very it was high end. It was very fine dining. Um, mm. You know, mm. where was the where was your favorite place to work, other than there? Um, Budokan really was Budokan really was this moment where I because learning how to cook is one thing. Learning how to be a restaurateur and a chef, I think, are two two totally different things. Like learning how to be a chef. You have to sit there, especially if, you know, owning your restaurant, owning your own restaurant isn't something you want to do. You have to learn how to take criticism from the owners because ultimately, as much as you think you're the boss, the minute this person walks into the door, he's the boss. The minute your director, your, you know, the director of operations, your GM walk through the door, they're your boss. Whether you're, you know, a sous chef or the executive chef, these people are your boss, so... You know, we would do tastings at the restaurant with Steven, and to his credit, was an amazing Steven experience. Star, Steven Star, the owner of Budokan and, and Morimoto, Morimoto. Yeah. And a bunch of different restaurants. He right. would say to the sous chef and chef team, "I want a monkfish dish. I want. I don't want any direction from. I don't want. I'm not going to give you any direction. I want eight of because there was a large yeah. uh, management staff at Budokan. I want eight different monk, uh, monkfish dishes. And we would sit at a table, and eight dishes would come out, and he would have. He would just tear people apart." This is terrible. This is not good. This is whatever. He would have servers and hostesses come in and taste the food. And, and So Top Chef was easy after Steven Starr. Uh, for me? <laughs> to taking, get criticism. Oh, my God. I mean, for me, taking criticism at that point was like, oh, this is, I've, I've done a lot. Work. You, don't, you guys don't pay my bills. You don't, pay, you don't write my checks. Steven does. So uh, yeah. it was pretty easy. So to when, when did you go on Top Chef the first time? Where were you working? I was at Budokan. I just got to Budokan when I, um, when I got there. 
uh, when I was on the show the first time. So what's that like? What propelled you to want to do that? You know, it was really, <laughs> it was really an ex-girlfriend that I that got me onto the show, who mm-hmm. like got me into watching it, and then she's like, "Hey, you should you should apply for this show. It's a great show." And then my sous chef staff, my all my cooks at Morimoto. At the time, I was at Morimoto. They're like, "Hey, you should go. You should go for the show. You're you're a lunatic." And I was like, "Okay." So I walked in, and I, it was a cold call, and I walked in and said, "Hey, I'd like to try out for this." And what's the trial like? It's really. It was really more of a, a conversation. It was just like an interview. Oh, so they cook. didn't. They didn't watch you cook. Mm-hmm. So they had no idea how good no. you were. They yeah. They don't know how good or bad you were, but they did have your resume and they did a thorough check on like, hey, does this guy do this? Does he do that? Um, does he do this at the restaurant? And they checked your background. So they're looking for your personality. I think at first they were yeah yeah they definitely were at first looking for your personality. Um, you know, at mo- they could uh, there's a way for them to look at your food. Mm-hmm. They just, you know, they can find your food. So then did Budokan have to give you the time off to go do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long did it take to tape the shows? Um, it took about five and a half weeks, if you make it all the way. Yeah. Um, but it re- I think now it, it really depends on, like, the shooting schedule. But, you know, ours, I was gone for about five and a half weeks. Wow. And what, and what city did they pick when you went? I was in Chicago the first time. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Because you were sort of home territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went back home, and it was it's a good feeling to be back home. But you know, you, like I said, it, you're committed to the show. It's you're sequestered. Oh, this is what yeah. You do just yeah. like there's no like, hey, I'm in town. Well, we're gonna get into the show, but we have to take another break. Sure. We'll be coming right back. Okay. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Well, welcome back. You're listening to Chef Story, and I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton from the International Culinary Center. And we're sitting in Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today I'm talking to Dale Talday, who has three Brooklyn restaurants. But before we get to them, we were in the middle of uh, Top Chef, and you tried out, and you made it, and they were doing it in Chicago. How tough is it? How t- You know, is it is it as tough as it looks? <laughs> it's is it tougher. Is, it's tougher. It's tougher? Tell oh, us. Absolutely. Tell us the backstory. I mean, it's it's every day. It's I mean, imagine going to work and either getting a promotion and more money or just getting fired every day. <laughs> Whether, you know, and so it's it really harder. based on decisions. So the first the first it's really much easier the first show than the last. No, the first show was tougher by far. I thought it was cuz you don't know what to expect. You mm. know, you don't know what you don't know like you don't have to sleep. You don't have a sleeping schedule. You don't know. They don't tell you anything. And you know, on the second time around, they were pretty. They were like, "Hey, you guys, they're gonna. They're not gonna treat you like 
people who've just been on the show because you know kind of the ins and outs so they're going to give you a little bit of a break on it and they take care of you a little bit more a little bit better was it obvious to you who was not going to make the cut the first time around yes it was there was like you look in someone's eye and you're just like oh my you you look lost like you for real look lost i mean you there really has to be a competitive edge mm-hmm. you have to you have to walk in with a swagger like i, I belong here and not only do i belong here i'm going to kick everybody's butt to get to to the top and some people just didn't have that like they were a little, you know a little bit shy i mean i mean that can also work against you but got to have that swagger when you come into these shows because you know a lack of confidence will destroy you. In the in the first Top Chef you were in, mm-hmm. was everybody a professional or were there amateurs, just good amateur No, cooks at that there? point, everybody was a professional. And anytime you see that person, if you ever see it, and I don't think they'll do it anymore, but anytime you ever see like, hi, I'm a culinary student and I know that, I, you know, I know they look at me like I'm the, I'm the, you know. Baby. I'm the baby and I'm the worst, but I'll show everybody. They're gone. Yeah. Automatic. What, what, why is that? They can't hang. They, there's no way. They give, the challenges they give are so tough mm. that if you're a new cook, an amateur, there's no way. I mean, there's like, if you think about just professionals that have been cooking for 20 years that can't achieve some of these challenges. Wow. So what, what do you think was the hardest technique given to you on that show? Um, it's always the speed versus volume. Mm. So it's like. But you're, you're always doing like four or six dishes, right? For the judges, yes, but it's 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 not like the quick fires to me were not a problem. Like the cook one dish, it's the cook one dish for three hundred people in two hours. Oh, that's right, because they yeah. yeah. yeah so yeah. to me, those are always the toughest because it's mm. like you know you have to you have to it's the worry of execution, it's the worry about making it taste good, it's it's the logistics of it all, and then you know when it's it's speed or time um, quantity. And then transportation, all three of those kind of like mixed into one. It's like that. Those they don't are, figure transportation for you. They you figure transportation, but you have to get you have to pack your stuff, get it there, unpack it, and then execute and, and execute it at the right temperature. Exactly. So like in in those in those um, instances, those are always the toughest because it's you know you're always pressed for time. It's mm. uh, what do you think of the judges? Did you think that they were qualified to judge? Oh yeah. I mean, most of the times they were. Um, I mean, when it's Tom and Gail and Padma and, uh, you know, when it's all these judges, you know, Hugh Atchison, their palates have <laughs> eaten around the world. They know what food is. Yeah. And it's funny because you, in your mind's eye, you think, oh, they're, they're not going to tell me. And then someone like Padma will say, did, did you toast all these spices? And you're like, I didn't. Mm. And you're like, oh, she just caught me. And, it's, and they don't see the video of it. Mm-hmm. They just know. They will just taste it. Mm-hmm. And like Tom will say. Oh, that's a really. That was a really uneven sear, and you're like, man, I know, I, I, it really was. It was a really uneven sear. Well, that's great. I mean, it's amazing what what how a professional tastes food versus an amateur. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, and then you made all stars. Yep. How did that make you feel? I mean, it was great. it was a great opportunity for redemption. I mean, I think you know every uh, for all of us who have gotten kicked off, it's always like, man, this is what I would have done different. And then you actually never thought that opportunity of like being able to do something, to, you know, to get on again and prove yourself would happen. And, you know, it was, it was a pretty good experience. It was mm. amazing that they actually chose me. I was honored. Really? No, well, you're, and you're proving it out. So let's get to your restaurants. Yes. Tell me three restaurants in one year. Did you plan it 
to be three. <laughs> so tell us how they all unfolded. Talde came first? Yeah, so Talde came first. And, you know, like when I got off All-Stars, I said to myself, this is my opportunity. I was working a great job with Steven Starr, you know, director of Asian Concepts, traveling around, creating dishes, kind of being like, you know, the, the point person on, you know, how things should be done um, with the food. And then I just said to myself, you know, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try and get my own restaurant. So I met up my business partners, David and John. Um, they had a restaurant already called Thistle Hill Tavern. And I said to them, hey, you guys want to partner up and do something? And we were all like, yeah, you know, we all kind of liked each other. We all we all thought each other's personalities gelled well. Um, so we decided to open Taldi. Uh, we got that open January 15th of uh, 2012. Last, 2012. And, um, you know, like, at the same time, not the same time, but... So look, tell me about that menu. What was the concept behind that restaurant? Uh, the concept, it, it really, it morphed. I mean, it changed a bunch of times. I mean, we didn't know what to call it, and we did understand that if you call, you know, it's like one of those things where if you don't know what to call the food in, like, two, two words, people lose interest in New York City. If mm-hmm. it's like, you have to tell someone what the food is, and it's elaborate sentence, people are like, nah, I think I just want Mexican. Yeah. Mexican. I think I just want Italian. Right. Um, so for each three syllables, exactly. So for us, we had to like, we had to call it something and calling it modern Asian was kind of like our fallback. Like, "Ah, I don't know what to call it. It's not really going to be this. So our, you know, our, what I credit this to my PR guy. He was just like, Hey, why don't we call who you are? Why don't we call the food? What what your culture is? You're an Asian American. Let's call it that. Cause that's where the point of view is. That's the POV of the restaurant. And we're like, all right, let's do it. And then it kind of took off from there. Like, the restaurant, Taldi, is food that kind of comes from where I'm from. So it's really great Korean food, Vietnamese, Filipino, because these are all the neighbors and like all my friends are these. Uh, Filipino food, Vietnamese, Korean, Thai, and then with the kind of a distinct, you know, American point of view. So uh, describe a dish that you think really ex- expresses that. Sure. So I think for us it's like the, um, the bacon pad Thai. With crispy oysters. So for us, it was like kind of this trip of like, I love oysters. Oh, I love pad thai. It's one of my favorite like kind of hangover foods. It's like one of my favorite noodle, noodle dishes. Yeah. So I took it and I thought, okay, hangover brunch. It's one of my favorite brunch foods. So if it's one of my favorite brunch foods already, bacon. Um, the bacon and the egg that are in the pad thai already, they go. to they go. So we went there. And then to me, I was just like, well, it's, we're on the East Coast. Beautiful Blue Point oysters. Oysters and bacon going well together. So we just fried some crispy oysters on top, and it's just how the dish came together. Um, and uh, I think that kind of epitomizes kind of what we do there. It's not; it's it's a, it's at heart a traditional dish, and then we just kind of put our American point of view into it. Hmm. So, how did the second restaurant come about? Oh, uh, this was nuts! I mean, we um, a very good friend of ours, um, Judith. She let us know that one of the restaurants on Fifth Avenue—that's not too far from Taldi. Um, Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn. Brooklyn, yes. Um, one of the owners and who was the landlord of the building was a restaurant called Aunt Susie. She was retiring, um, and she still owned the building, so she was going to kind of handpick her successor. She wasn't going to put the restaurant. Now on. this is just a few months later after this is, you opened Talde. When we signed the restaurant, we were not even open yet. Oh my gosh! So when you signed the second restaurant, when we signed the second restaurant. We were two days away from being open, and I was in a daze, going, "I cannot believe we're going to do this." But we had talked to we had talked to um, the landlord, and she gave us you know she handpicked she saw us met us ate at the Hill Tavern because that was already open, and she said you know what you guys are great guys 
um, I'd love if you're interested. I'd love to get give you guys you know the keys to the restaurant. So we worked out a deal, and and luckily we had investors that were really psyched, and um, we signed. I literally we I we had two days from opening. We were sitting there in, in the lawyer's office signing and getting keys to the next restaurant, and I was like, I can't believe we're doing this. <laughs> Um, and, it, and it just kind of happened. It happened from there. So how did you get enough cooks? And you have to train two kitchens. And- well, we knew that the build out that we had on the second restaurant was going to take six months, six okay. to eight months. So-, so we erased our hiring. We found the chef. We let everybody know what was going on. Um, we started. And I mean, we were six guys at Tully, seven right. guys, two dishwashers, eight guys, two dishwashers, a morning and a night guy, one garbage day guy, me, my now chef de cuisine, Andrew, and my two other sous chefs, Kyle and Janine. And that was it. We had nobody how many, else. How many seats in the restaurant? 65 seats in the dining room, 12 seats at the bar. Oh, my gosh. So how many covers a night on Saturday? At night, we do a, we, we push about 180. And all day, though, uh, 200. All day, we're doing about, with brunch and dinner now, we're doing about four, four and some change. With how many in the kitchen? We have a lot more now, so yeah, we've, we have a lot. The more kitchen now. big. We've doubled. It's a tiny kitchen. We've uh, doubled the amount of staff that we've had. We probably have like eighteen um, back of the house employees, wow. cooks, dishwashers. I mean, you know, right. it's an army. Right. So okay. So the second one was pork slope. Second restaurant was pork slope. I love it, the name. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like this funny, like you know, like we should open a barbecue restaurant, and it's really how it happened. We were kind of like in the middle of putting Taldy together. And I was this like, is oh. at Ant. Mary's or whatever. Aunt Susie's. Aunt yeah. Susie's. This old Aunt so Susie's now space. Pork, Slo- yeah, pork, pork Slope is Aunt Susie's mm-hmm. space. Okay. So we were kind of sitting down, you know, talking. Um, and I said, hey, it would be funny if we opened a barbecue restaurant called Pork Slope in Park Slope. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, everybody just went, everybody's eyes lit up. We closed the door and we're like, no one leaves until we hash this out. No one talk about this. Mm-hmm. And we kind of put it down on paper what it should be and what it, what it was going to be to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, dreaming stages. But, you know, like, I took cues from, like, my favorite movie, John Patrick Swayze's Roadhouse. <laughs> that was, like, my favorite movie. Ago. It still is. So, like, that was one of the inspirations. Like, you know, the dive bars that I grew up going to as a kid were, were inspirations. So we all kind of drew from that. Um, and, you know, we wanted to have a bar that we can go to after Taldi that was not Asian food. Because, like, that's – I've been doing almost entirely Asian food my entire life. So it's, like, whenever I leave Taldi or it, I want a burger – so did you totally craft the menu or were other people involved too? At, at Pork Slope? Yeah, I think it was, you know, it really was my team at Taldi. Um, we all were like, hey, what, what would you like to see? It? What, would you, what do you want to eat at night? And, you know, I love tater tots. Tater, we have no fries. It's just tater tots. You know, we did a great burger, a, like a bar burger, uh, pulled pork sandwiches, brisket, you know, slow smoked brisket, ribs. Um, now we have great nachos. We're getting we got roto for our nachos, and um, you know we're, we have a burger pro, uh, a burrito program at the at pork uh, slope. What do you mean a burrito program? Well, it's kind of like a do-it-yourself burrito, or like you know choose your own adventure burrito. So we have we, we have a we lay on the foundation of like Spanish rice, beans, pickled jalapenos. Um, people put like we have barbecue. We have like uh, buffalo shrimp. So people do like an order of buffalo shrimp, and we put that inside the burrito, lettuce, guajillo sauce, then we roll it up, cheese on top of that. Or people have done fried chicken, like like fried chicken, breaded fried chicken that we have. Um, and then last week, my sous chef did a cheeseburger in it, like a whole a cheeseburger. whole cheeseburger in a burrito. In a burrito. 
That is the first I've ever... Okay, so then, are you crazy, Thistle Hill? So Tell me my, about that. So then my business partners, they had this restaurant already. Um, they were going through a couple chefs. Um, and it was this always... the third restaurant in 2012. This was Correct. like October, right? This is October. So we, I would always see that them, you know, we would we would have owners meetings, and then then they was like, hey, now we got to talk about thistle, and I'd be like, okay, now now I'm gonna go do what I need to do, and it felt it felt weird, like, hey, we're not all doing this together, even though I would give them advice, hey, you know what, you, this is what you guys should do with some of the dishes there at the food, and I would give them advice on it, and it just became like this moment where like we all should just partner up because. It seems silly that we're not involved, even though I, I want to be involved and help you guys with your own restaurant because, you know, you guys seem so, like, stressed about it. So it sounds like you've morphed from being a chef into being more a um, business chef overseeing that. How, mu- how much do you get to cook anymore? Um, I mean, I think it, it, those are the bright spots in our day. <laughs> and you can jump <laughs> when on I can the line. jump in the line and actually make yeah. something, or I get creative and like have an, and have this idea. You know, when it's not just checking the email, writing emails about like I need line cooks. When it's not making sure that your numbers at these restaurants are working out, that you're writing schedules. Or, so, do you feel you are a chef? But always. do you feel more like a manager? You know, a chef is a manager. Sure. But what 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 percentage of your day is? Chef, oh. and what percentage is manager? I think my my or day will creative. It's it's for me fifty fifty, but managing uh, the creativity aspect of it. If you don't empower your your sous, your sous chef, your chef de cuisine, if you don't empower them to start like really being creative, then you're doing a just such a, a disjustice. Service. Yeah, to these guys because they need they need that what that's what needs to um, spur them. Right. That makes them a better chef. Like, mm-hmm. I can teach them how to work on my food cost, even though I'm not great at it. I can teach them how to manage cooks and, and tell them how to, you know, how to talk to cooks and how to motivate. But that part is from within. They have to find their own voice. They have to find their own palate about how they like to cook and, and taste food. So that's, wow. yeah. I have a, f- oh, you know what? We're in a container in Roberta's in Brooklyn where this <laughs> radio show is. And I think they're doing the spring uh, planting above oh, on the nice. roof. <laughs> so, well, anyway, this, I can't wait to, um, like, I want to go taste that cheeseburger burrito. I do too. I, I, I saw my sous chef eat it. Did you like, eat it? I, I don't think I have the, I don't have the guts for that right now. I mean, I saw him eat it. I was like, dude, are you really going to take that down? And he's like, yeah, man, I'm doing it. Yeah, at that point, he had a couple whiskeys in him, and that's kind of place Pork Slope is, but I was like, all right, God bless, man. Good all luck. Right. Let me know. Well, what. you know what? All I have to say, Dale, it's April 2013. You haven't opened a restaurant yet. No, What's we're happening? T- we're taking 2013. We're going to take a break this this year and really focus on the restaurants and making them as good as they, at their, making them their full potential, and then hopefully in 2014, we'll open up with a big bang. Wow. Well, thanks for fitting into your very busy schedule, you know, stopping by and talking to us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And uh, shout out to Jack Inslee and Robin Cohen. Thanks a lot for your production help. And this is Dorothy Can Hamilton. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on RadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.